But let's open a word of prayer and uh, we'll turn our hearts to Judges 16, picking up with verse 4, 4 to 21 tonight. So, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can uh, study together uh, your truth. And we look at Samson and Delilah tonight. And uh, it's really uh, an interesting uh, story that is recorded for us in Scripture. And we pray that we'd be able to apply the truths that we learn tonight to our own personal lives. And Lord, we do pray for um, our country. We pray for our leaders. We pray for uh, the Congress as they're considering all these different spending bills that uh, doesn't look promising for our country. We pray that uh, you would have your way in all those things. And Lord, we also pray for the people over in Afghanistan still who are left there. Uh, we pray for their safety and pray that we would be able to uh, uh, secure their release and, and allow them to come home. And Lord, we do pray that you would just uh, lead us tonight uh, through this time of uh, study in your word. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Judges chapter 16, <clears throat> uh, beginning in verse 4. So you can follow along in your Bibles. We got down to verse 4 last week. But tonight we'll pick up in verse 4. It says, After this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's about a little over $750,000 today. Uh, so Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound, them, bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him uh, with them and said to them, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like thread. Then Delilah, verse 13, said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my hair with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into uh, and, and, and wove them into the web, and she 
made them tight with a pin and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. Verse 15, and she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me with these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other men. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. And she made him sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to torment him. And his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, uh, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. Interesting story. <laughs> Poor Samson didn't learn his lesson yet again. And so this story presents us with a, a whole host of characters, really. Obviously, there's Samson and Delilah. Uh, they're the kind of the couple the, of the the stars here of the show. And then you have the supporting characters of the lords of the Philistines in verse 5. And then there was five of those. Um, in Judges 3.3 3 it tells us, And then the men who hid in Delilah's home waiting to capture Samson. And so there's quite a few people involved in this little sordid tale, <laughs> little love tale we're told here. Um, Obviously, the focus is on Samson and Delilah, but it's, it's a story of three things. It's a story of love, it's a story of lies, and it's also a story of tremendous loss. And it's, it's really a tale for the ages. We've read about this in Sunday school and church. We've been familiar with Samson and Delilah, and it's always been kind of romanticized a little bit, I think. Um, but when you get down to it, it's, it's really a sad story, and we should take to heart what uh, we're going to learn tonight. And so I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about this. Uh, their story does not teach us uh, lessons about genuine love or genuine romance. That's not what you're going to find in this story. Uh, but it does teach us lessons about getting too close to the enemy, getting too close to the opposition. And their story is really a story of uh, deception, of greed of lust, and ultimate destruction. That's what we kind of see going on here. And the story stands as, a, as a, really a, a warning to any of us who would consider making light of or trifling with sin in our lives. And that's kind of what Samson did here. It's a, it's a reminder, as we went over last week even, that sin is deceptive, and it's also deadly. It's deadly. And so there may be pleasures 
in sin for a season, but in the end, um, sin is never worth the, the pleasure that it provides. It's never worth it. And so we want to consider their story. And first of all, here in your outline, you see there it's a story of love. It says that in verses 4 and 5. It says, we are told that Samson loved a woman. And I put in there parentheses, women, <laughs> because that was his downfall. Um, this has been over the course of his life, but this is the third woman that we have record of Samson being with. Uh, remember, the, the first woman was the woman of Timnath back in Judges 14. And then we had the harlot in Gaza um, in Judges 16 at the beginning. And now there's this woman, Delilah, uh, with, with Samson's record, there may have been others, but the Bible doesn't give us any information on them, so we're just going to go with, with the three, just with the kind of personality he was. And so it mentions these three women, and it seems that all three of them were Philistines, which he was strictly forbidden to um, be with. And it appears that Samson has some odd attraction to women who have been off limits to him. And sometimes when you take something and you, you put it off limits to somebody, um, rather than discourage them from going after it, what does it do? It encourages them. <laughs> you know, it's like putting a child in a room with a bowl of cookies and saying, whatever you do, do not eat one of these cookies. And you leave the room, what's the kid going to do? 90% of the time, he's going to eat one of the cookies simply because you told him not to. And it's enticing. It's right there. Um, and that's where, you know, it, it, when, when we have things in our lives that are, that are kind of forbidden fruit, you might say, there's kind of a weird attraction to something like that. And you see it all the time in the, in the lives of people. And... Um, these women were off limits because he was supposed to be a man who was committed to God. He was supposed to be a Nazarite. He took this vow. He was, all these things were supposed to be off limits to him. But it also appears in, in Samson's life, he had a problem, a personal problem with uh, lust. He had a personal problem with a wrong thought life, uh, which as a man of God, he should have fought against. He should have put up a defense against it. And it seems that his life is characterized by a... a, a several illicit um, relationships. And there can be no doubt that this, this was a sin. It was a snare in his life. It was one of those besetting sins that kept on coming up over and over and over, and it hindered his ministry clearly as a judge in Israel. By the way, the same is true for us today. Uh, the Lord obviously gave us intimate desires, and, and they're, they're good when they're, they're exercised in the proper context of marriage within that framework of, of marriage. That's where they're, they're to be enjoyed and practiced. But when we step outside of the boundary of marriage and we, engain, we, we engage in intimate uh, physical relationships, it crosses the line into sin. God wants his people to be pure. And, and that's very important. We can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says very clearly to the Corinthians, we went, we went over this 
when we went through uh, this part of, of Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but a sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul had to point this out, even to Christians in Corinth. Look, this doesn't give you, just because your sins are forgiven, a free pass to go do whatever you want. Or in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's pointing this out to the the Pharisaical leaders of his day. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the Pharisees were saying, well, we don't, you know, we, we would never practice something like that. And they're, they were <clears throat> big on what you see on the outside, as many religious leaders are. And what you see on the outside is not always what you get. And so we have to be aware of that. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all. God holds a very special place um, for marriage and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous and that will happen one day and that's what was so upsetting when several years ago that um, marriage was defamed it was brought low it was um, not held in honor and it was basically equated to immorality, homosexuality. And they just redefined the term. Marriage had always been between a man and a woman. And because of social pressures and the age in which we live, everybody wants to have their own way. And um, so they they said, no, we're going to recognize marriage as something different. We're going to redefine it. And that's an affront to God. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people say, what's the will of God for me? What's the will of God? Well, if you turn to those verses, you'll see it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God. Points it right out, Paul does. Your sanctification. Okay, you're, you're setting yourself apart, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body Look at what it says, in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we, are told, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, Paul says in verse 8, or verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man. You're not going to answer to man. You're going to answer to God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we're told in this text that Samson, quote, loved Delilah. He loved Delilah. This was not said about the other women that Samson was with in in Scripture. Um... It wasn't said about the woman he took as his wife, nor was it said about the harlot that he had a relationship with in Gaza. 
But in this case, Delilah seems to have somehow tugged at the heart of Samson. There was something about Delilah that drew him in. And it appears <clears throat> that he truly cared for her. He truly loved her. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that lust had a part of it. But for whatever reason, it, it, it tells us that he loved her here. And in verse 17, as the text suggested, he trusted her with his most valuable secrets. You don't just do that with anybody. And the fact that Solomon loved Delilah <clears throat> does not excuse him in his sin. We're not trying to say that, but Samson sinned because he was guilty of fornication. He was guilty of relationships outside of marriage. Uh, there's a lack of morality even in our own world. Clearly, we see it all around, around us, even among those who call themselves Christians. And it shouldn't be that way, but it is. And those who know the Lord <coughs> should be careful. You have to be careful to keep yourself clean, to keep yourself unpolluted, to keep yourself spotless from all the immorality around you. And, and that's a very difficult thing to do because we live in a godless world. We live in a world that affirms everything that's wrong. It's like everything's upside down. What's wrong is right and what's right is wrong. Um, so if you're a single person here tonight, just understand God has given you the wherewithal to wait until you're married, until you become intimate. <clears throat> and you can keep your bodies as the temples of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, for those of us who are married, I just encourage you, be faithful to your spouse, both physically and mentally. Both are important. And may God help us to strive to keep that for a goal. And you know what? <clears throat> Maybe you're here tonight and you failed in this area. Well, you know, the good thing is, is there's forgiveness, right? There's forgiveness. There's restoration. God, grace extends to us. But if you haven't failed in this area, there's strength. There's strength in the Lord to help you stay pure for the glory of God. And so we see here that Samson loved a woman, but Delilah <laughs> loved wealth. Secondly, Delilah loved wealth. While Samson loved Delilah, she apparently did not love him too much. She just wanted money. And uh, the lords of the Philistines come to Delilah, and they offer her 1,100 pieces of silver, each to discover and tell them the secret to Samson's power. We see that in verse 5. And, and they want her, they come up with this plan, hey, you know what, he, we can tell he likes, likes you, uh, seduce him. Uh, the word seduce means to entice, it means to be uh, simple or to be uh, gullible would be another uh, definition. It's, it's kind of like acting like an innocent person in order to deceive someone else. That's what they're asking her to do. Just be sugar sweet to him, but we want you to get this information. We want you to trick him. And these men want her to play dumb and do everything that she can to extract from Samson this secret of his power. Why is he so strong? And the ancient Philistines, by the way, they're very superstitious people as a culture. They were very superstitious. 
And so they probably assume that maybe he possessed some kind of little amulet or a little good luck charm or something that gives him this power. Maybe he wears a ring, maybe something. Find out what it is because we need to get that away from him because we don't want him to have that kind of power because we want to take him out. They want to exploit his weakness for women to their advantage. And that's what the enemy always does. The enemy knows your greatest weakness, even as you sit here tonight. He already knows it. And so he will exploit that. Uh, They want to use her, use Delilah, to find his secret. And Delilah is more than willing to go along with the plan because they'd offer 1,100 pieces of silver. That would make her a very, 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 very wealthy woman back in that day. In today's money, it would be in the neighborhood of about, like I said, $750,000. And she didn't care about Samson. She could care less. She only used him to get rich. He was, you could say, her lottery ticket, uh, her golden goose, whatever. Uh, All she had to do was play her part, and she would walk away with this tremendous reward of wealth. Um, This really gives us a picture of the ways of sin. Um, She represents exactly how Satan works or attempts to work in our own lives. Uh, The Lord doesn't want us falling into these traps that are being laid by the enemy. By modern Delilahs and by the devil. He doesn't want us falling into that. He will enable us to escape the devil's traps if we look to him for deliverance. That's what we're told in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You know, we should commit this to memory. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men. What? God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. That's what Paul told the Corinthian church. Um, God always provides a way of escape when we are tempted. We can't point our finger at the devil. We can't point our finger at somebody else. Oh, they made me do it. The devil made me do it. No. When we sin, we have to own it. Um, God doesn't want to hear excuses. He wants to hear, you know what? I blew it. I'm sorry. Thank you for your forgiveness. Fill me once again with your spirit and move on. The unfortunate thing is so many Christians' lives, when they blow it, the enemy uses that as an opportunity to bring shame upon them to the degree that they isolate themselves. So they blow it morally, say, and rather than going to church the next week, what do they do? They stay away because they don't feel worthy to come to church because they're believing the lie that the enemy is putting out there. You know, God knows you're not perfect. None of us are perfect. We're going to sin. That's why he has forgiven us of what? All of our sins. We need to remind ourselves of that. Now, that doesn't give us a license to go out and sin more, as Paul says. Sin abounds, grace abounds more. No, you don't want to do that. Um, We want to live lives of holiness and, and purity for the Lord. So you see the story of of love well secondly look at verses 6 to 14 because we see a story of lies neither samson nor delilah was honest really in their relationship with one another the only way any relationship can survive and thrive is for that relationship to be built upon truth 
and honesty. It has to be. Well, look at their lies. The first thing, Samson's lies were completely senseless. When Delilah begins to ask Samson about the source of his strength, what's, what's he do? He plays with her thinking that he is far smarter than she will ever be. That's his attitude here. After all, he's the strong judge of Israel. And what is she? She's just a weak woman. That's his mentality here. By the way, the word, the name, this was interesting, Delilah, means feeble or, 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 or pining one. He thinks it will be fun to toy with this feeble little woman and try to have her trap him. He's overconfident at this point. He's confident in the notion that he is stronger than anything or anyone, period. And whenever you get to the point where you think that you're stronger than anyone or anything, including the temptation of sin, you got a problem. you got a problem. He believes there's no way that she can harm him. And notice how he tries to deceive her. He says in verses 7 to 10, bind me with seven fresh bowstrings. This refers to animal intestines that have not been um, dried yet. That's what they used to make these out of. And these strips of animal intestines were, when dried, were used to make bowstrings. And when they were were dried, they were incredibly uh, strong. And when they were green, they were... uh, weak they were easily broken and this lie shows the the contempt really that samson had for the philistines and so what does delilah do she binds him and she tells the philistines um hey the philistines are here and what does he do he breaks the bowstrings as if they were like it says thread touched to a fire you ever held a piece of thread over a candle or something it's just boom you know it's not, it, it doesn't take a lot And in verse 10, Delilah confronts Samson with his lies and begs him. Really, it says there, the the idea is begs him to tell her the truth. She she wants that money. And Samson's thinking, "Ah, okay, uh, let's tell her another lie. In verse 10, or verse 11 to 13, he comes up with another one. If they bind me with the new ropes that have not been used. So green ropes are, are very strong um, ropes. Any ordinary man could never break just a green rope. But again, Samson once again shows his, his uh, disregard for his enemies. They had already seen what he could do with ropes, you remember? We saw this several weeks ago in, in, in verse 15, or chapter 15, verses 12 to 15. When his own people, what they do? They bound him with ropes and they gave him to the Philistines. Remember that? So Samson had broken the ropes as if they were nothing and he used the, remember the jawbone of that, that donkey and he killed a thousand men. Remember that? So here he's, he's simply toying with Delilah and he's toying with the Philistines. He thinks he's far above their their wisdom and their intellect, and there's no way this is ever, I'll I'll play the game, I'll go along and I'll play the game. And so Delilah binds him with the ropes, and he he, um, breaks them as a man would break a piece of thread. This guy's strong, no doubt about it. 
And again, Delilah, once again, confronts Samson and demands. And you can see it kind of amping up here in the language that he tell her the truth. So he, what's he do? He tells her another lie. Verse 13, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I will be like every other man. Samson tells Delilah to take a loom and weave his hair into it. Maybe he wanted to get a head massage or something. I don't know what he was thinking here, but, you know, he just made up this story. And if she does, he says, well, if you do that, uh, I'll lose my strength. But you notice with each lie, he's getting what? He's getting closer, isn't he? To revealing the truth of his power. He's getting closer. Not quite revealing it yet, but he's getting closer. And see, Samson is in this dangerous game. uh, And he's about to get burned. And he doesn't even realize it. And that's what happens when you flirt with sin. Which is what he was doing. And so Delilah, what does she do? She does as he says, and Samson simply gets up and he walks away as if he was carrying nothing at all. Um, So what you should note about this is Samson is guilty of playing with sin. He is guilty. He knew the source of his strength. He entered into a deadly game with this woman, Delilah. Uh, And by the time he gets to the third deception, he's getting very, very, very close to actually revealing the whole truth about his strength. And that's the problem with sin, ultimately, is that people play with it. They go as far as they can without actually crossing the line that they've drawn in the sand, in their mind, which they think is forbidden. And Jesus made it very clear that sin in the heart is sin already, period even if it hasn't been carried out in the flesh. And he, he communicated so much of that in Matthew chapter 12, when he was dealing once again with the religious leaders of his day. He calls them in verse 34 of Matthew 12, you, you, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance, look at what it says, of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So sin in the heart is just as bad as sin that's out there living it up in the flesh. And he said that as we just read in Matthew 5 verse 28. If you've even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Uh, See, the problem is most people think somehow they can control their sin. Somehow it's not, a good, it's not going to get the upper hand on, in their life. And they're not hurting anybody with their sin. So, you know, it's okay. In truth, but for the grace of God, what happens? Sin's en- sin ends up controlling them, not the other way around. And it will be a master in our life if you allow it to have a foothold even in a small area. That's what happens. And that's why Paul wrote in Romans 6... Very clear, verses 11 to 14. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 12, he says, Let not sin therefore reign. Um, Just unbridled reign, unbridled rule in your mortal body 
to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteous, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. That's where we're at in our position with God. We're not under the law, we're under his grace. And we can present our members to God for his use in righteousness. In James chapter 1, it goes into more detail about the lure of sin. It says, but when, verse 14, but when each person is tempted, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, it says. He's lured and he's enticed. Then desire, when it fully has conceived, gives birth to what? To sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's no sin in being tempted. We're tempted all the time. The sin comes when we, when we, when we are lured and we are enticed by our own lustful desire. And that desire gives birth to sin. And it brings forth death. Um, those words, lured and entice, mean to en- entice like game is lured from its hiding place. Uh, we have a, I think it's, I don't know if it's a groundhog or what it is back there in our house in Pennsylvania, but... Um, the couple that watches the house when we're not there and does some of the groundkeeping and house cleaning and stuff for us, they have a, a, a grandson, and the grandson's always trapping. He likes to trap things. So he's got this big box trap that my brother-in-law had, and I g- kind of gave it to him and said, here, have fun with this. Well, he's been trying to trap this, this animal that keeps on coming up and going on the, onto the porch and things. It doesn't really do anything, but they're not good to have around. So he's trying to, he's trying to trap it. And the thing's pretty smart. I don't know how it gets on the patio. I don't have a camera pointing in that direction, but I see him go up there, and he's got traps everywhere, and uh, somehow this thing keeps avoiding it. But what does he do? He puts in the box trap something that will lure that animal into that trap. And as soon as that animal goes in there, the switch is, is tripped, and the door closes, and he's got himself a trapped animal. Um, well, that's what this word means, lured. Uh, it means to be lured, be brought out from your hiding place. The word entice means to be lured by bait. And each one of us, because we're human, have natural lust. We have cravings for sin. Each one of us has, you know, there's, there's, there's fleshly appetite within each one of us that will control us if we allow it to. You know, I, I always pause and, and I, I, I question sometimes the honesty of, of some individuals when they make a statement they see someone or something that is alluring to them um, sometimes it's a maybe a woman who's dressed inappropriately scantily clad or whatever and they look at it and they go isn't that disgusting And I always thought, no, it's not disgusting. 
because if it was disgusting, it wouldn't be attractive. See, we, we, we don't believe the lie that Satan puts out there that, that, that the temptation of sin and the enticement that's put there is not attractive. It is attractive. That's the problem. That's why when you see something like that, what does Paul tell us to do? To flee. Go the, don't, don't stand there and look. Gaze. So it enters into your mind and you start thinking all these thoughts. Run the other way. And so we have to be honest about this in this, this area. There's a fleshly appetite within each one of us that will control us if we allow it to. And if we just deny it's not there, that's, that's not being honest. Satan focuses on these sinful desires that we have. He, he will entice us to sin by dangling his bait in front of us. And guess what? The bait isn't, you know, three-week-old rotting chicken. That would not be alluring to an animal. They wouldn't want that, right? They want something that's tasty, something that's fresh. And when we, we bite, what does he do? He springs the trap and we find ourselves ensnared in his web of sin. And the Bible teaches us that within our hearts dwells the root of all of our, our sinfulness. Matthew chapter 7 uh, verses 20 and 20, 21 and 23, um, it says this, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That's so important for us to understand. We're not above that as believers. We have to be honest with ourselves. I remember a story Paul Harvey told when he was alive. He was a radio personality. Just, you know, the rest of the story and all that stuff. Some of you remember who he was. But he told, told a story one time of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. And what the Eskimo does is he takes this knife that he has a weapon and he takes the knife blade and he begins to coat it with animal blood and the animal blood freezes on the blade and then he puts another coat of animal blood on it and that blood freezes over top of the other blood and pretty soon he's got this glob of frozen blood on this very sharp knife and what does he do? He, he keeps on doing that until the blade is completely concealed. You can't even see the blade anymore. It's just a, a red glob of frozen blood. And next, what the Eskimo does is he takes the knife out and he fixes it into the ground with the blade pointing up. And wolves have a very keen source of scent. And so they discover the bait right away. They smell the blood. And what does the the, the wolf do, he begins to lick the blood. And, and he just can't get enough of this because that's what he wants. And he's tasting this fresh, frozen blood. And he begins to lick faster and lick faster and faster and more vigorously. And he's lapping at the blade until the keen edge is bare. <laughs> but he's such in a fever rate, rate now. He's just, he's just going crazy over this blood. 
And he's looking harder and harder and harder. He licks the blade in the frozen Arctic night. And he becomes such enthralled with the craving for blood, the wolf doesn't even realize how sharp the blade is as it cuts his tongue. And he doesn't even realize that he's, he's, he's beginning to satisfy his own insatiable thirst for blood with his own blood. And he ends up bleeding out right there in the snow. And the Eskimo gets up the next day and goes out, and hey, there's the wolf. <laughs> See, it's a fearful thing that people can be consumed by their own lusts. Literally consumed. And only God's grace can keep us from a fate like the wolf. <laughs> we don't want that to happen to us. So instead of playing with sin, we should be like Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember what Joseph did. He put a lot of distance between him and the temptation. Genesis chapter 39 says, And after a time, verse 7, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has into my charge. Verse 9, he has... He is, he is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And that's what we have to remember. When we, when we are enticed by temptation, what is it? It's an enticement not to just enjoy sin. It's an enticement to wickedness and a great sin against God. Verse 10 says, And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. We have no business putting ourselves in situations that could potentially harm us or put ourselves in situations that are, are any form tempta- tempting to us as believers. We, we, we don't want to play around with sin, thinking that somehow we can control it because the reality is it will c- control us if we give in to that deception. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 6, you see the same thing with Eve in the Garden of Eden. She listened to the serpent, and what happened? Rather than run, she fell right into the trap. And what did Adam do? He followed Eve right in. Now we've got sin in the world. So, I mean, it, it happens like that every time, like clockwork. And so, we also see here, not only were Samson's lies senseless, but Delilah's lies were sinister were sinister while samson was toying around with delilah thinking oh you know this is no big deal uh, she was playing him like a cheap fiddle she was setting him up for a fall and he didn't even see it coming 
Samson lied to her. Why? Because he thought he was smarter than her. He thought he could outwit her. And she lied to him because she was far <laughs> smarter than he was. And he didn't even recognize it. Delilah played her part well. And she lured Samson into her trap just as surely a spider flies, lures a fly into the web. And Delilah uses the same tactic used by the woman in Timnath. She did the exact same thing. He's heard this before. What does she say? If you love me, you would tell me. That's the card Delilah played. The Bible implies there that she begged him. She was begging him at this point. She really wanted that money. <laughs> she was pleading with him, whining. It has the idea that she was crying day after day, all day long. What's she doing? She's wearing him down. And after a while, her, her persistence wore Samson down. And this is how sin works. If we allow ourselves to be placed under the constant pressure of temptation, we too will be worn down. Eventually you will give in. You will sin. That's why we should avoid it like the plague. And like Delilah, sin, unfortunately, is relentless 24-7. It's aggressive. It's persistent. It will continue to hammer away at us day after day, hammer away at our resistance until you just give in a little bit. And once you give in a little bit, then it's got its foothold. And when, they, when sin has a foothold, you always come out on the losing end. You never win that battle. And the best advice, I think, is to put as much distance as you can between yourself and the source of sin and temptation in your life. If you have a weak area in this or that or whatever it is, then, then do whatever is needed to put distance between you and that source of temptation. All you have to do is ask the girl who lost her purity to the boy that said, well, if you love me, you will. <laughs> or ask the man who traded his family for a woman, if you love me, you will. Playing with sin is like playing with fire. You eventually get burned. That's Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27. It says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That seems like a silly question. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Ask all the new age people that. <laughs> the answer is no. The answer is no. You play with sin, you're always, always, always going to pay the price. You might not face the same thing Samson did, but you will pay the price for indulging sin in your life. Because Galatians, very clearly, Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. What? God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You will sacrifice your intimacy with God. You will sacrifice his power. You will endanger the relationships that matter most in your life. Sin always costs. And the costs are never cheap. Because Satan will not stop 
until he has ruined your life completely, as well as your testimony for the Lord. He will not back down until sin has taken everything of value from you. He will not stop until you are broken, your life wasted, and you are of no use to God whatsoever. That's his goal. And like Delilah, the the lies of Satan that he tells us over and over in the sin are sinister. They're destructive. Read an illustration of a wealthy contractor in New York City. And he had finished building the what was known as the Tombs Prison in New York. And apparently when he was going through this construction project, he compromised and he did some things he shouldn't have done to get some certain deals done. Well, he was brought up on trial and he was found guilty of forgery and he was sentenced to several years in the very prison he built. And when he was escorted into the cell of his own making, the contractor said, I never dreamed when I built this prison that I would be an inmate here one day. Never entered his mind. See, that's, that's the trouble with sin. We never stop to think about the consequences of our own actions. <clears throat> one day, we will have to answer for the things that we do. <clears throat> well, a story of love, a story of lies, and lastly, a story of loss. A story of loss. Verses 17 to 20. Delilah wore Samson down, and he eventually told her the truth. He told her about his hair being a symbol of his Nazarite vow before God. Apparently, at this point, Samson trusted Delilah, and he believed that his secret was safe with her. I mean, that's just so silly. I mean, you can see how blinded this guy was with lust. Foolish. No sooner is he asleep that she has a man cut off his hair and it says there that she began to torment him. The woman he loved. She began to torment him. The phrase means she began to humiliate him, to mock him. She began to mistreat him. And the former strong man now has become weak in the hands of this very wicked woman. He can't even defend himself against her, it says, because his strength left him. Look at his losses incurred on both sides of this relationship. Delilah's losses were considerable. In the end, Delilah really lost nothing. She was a sinner before this event, and she remained a sinner after this event. The real tragedy is that Samson was supposed to be a man of God. As a Jew, he was supposed to take the light of of God's law and the grace of God's love and share it with the lost Gentiles so that they may come to know God that he was supposed to be serving during this time. Because he allowed his, his passions and his lust to govern his life, his testimony is destroyed in front of Delilah completely. In the aftermath of this story, is easy to reconstruct. Delilah enjoyed the fruits of her deception. She instantly became a very, very wealthy woman. Financially, she was set for life. However, in the end, even though it looks like she won, 
what happened? She lost everything. Eventually, what happened? She dies. And when she did, she died in her sins and most likely went to hell. She gained nothing, absolutely nothing of lasting value while losing the things that we should value the most. This happens all the time. People are concerned about all their material possessions, all their wealth, everything, but they they lose sight of their own soul. In the end, she lost everything. And I'm reminded of Mark chapter 8, verses 36 and 37, where the Lord says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Ray Comfort uses the illustration, if, if someone offered you $500,000 for one of your eyes, would you, would you give it? Would you take it? Most people would say, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to give you my eye. I enjoy seeing with both eyes. Come on, I'll give you a million dollars. Two million dollars for both of your eyes. You would have to be a fool to say, okay. Right? Why? Because your eye is precious. Your vision is precious to you. And yet we treat our own souls with so much disregard. Delilah stands as an example for all those who would put sin ahead of a relationship with God. You might enjoy the pleasures of this world for a while, but in the end, there is nothing in front of you but the judgment of God and an eternity in a place called hell. If you don't know the Lord, I I challenge you to come to Christ. For the hope of salvation can clearly deliver you from the wrath of God. That's the promise of God. So we see that Delilah's losses were considerable, but Samson's losses were complete. Well, Delilah lost little in her day-to-day life because of their encounter. Samson lost everything of value, and he lost it immediately. Immediately. Look at the high price that Samson paid for indulging in his sin. First of all, he lost much physically. He paid a high price for his sin with Delilah. He lost his strength. (laughs) He lost his eyes. He lost his freedom, secondly, um, or, or under the physically, he lost his freedom. Verse 21, it says, they seized him and they bound him, the Philistines did. No more could Samson go out and do as he pleased. He was a, his slave now. His sin had robbed him of his freedom, and he, he was a prisoner of his enemies, and that's what sin does. It robs you of your freedom. Secondly, he lost his vision. They put out his eyes. They gouged out his eyes. They took away from him the faculty of his sight. They blinded him. Why? Because a blind Samson is a lot easier to control than a seeing Samson. Thirdly, he lost his dignity, verse 21. The first time Samson came to Gaza, it was for the purpose of what? Finding pleasure. That's why he went there. He was chasing sin. This time he returns to Gaza as a prisoner of the Philistines. And what do they do? They take him to their prison and they force him to grind (laughs) on the mill. Grinding was the work of in that culture, women 
and the lowest of slaves. They didn't have a lot of respect for women back then, so they gave them this horrible job of grinding grain. And it, it shows the disdain that the Philistines had for Samson, and, and rightly so. I mean, he killed a thousand of them and several other. I mean, he, he did a lot of harm to them in his lifetime. And so what the, their goal was not just to kill him. They wanted to humiliate this mighty judge of Israel by forcing him to labor as a slave. They were really mocking God in this. And all these things are, are, are pictures of sin's power in our own lives. Those who allow themselves to be taken into the trap of sin will find that sin has the power to bind them. To blind them and also to grind them. Sin blinds men by enslaving them in the habits that are hard to break. Sin blinds them into believing that there's nothing wrong with their lives. Or even with the sins that they're committing. And sin then grinds them into powder and uses up their lives until they're just a shell of what they used to be. You just have to talk to somebody that's gone down this road and they'll tell you all three of those things is true. It will wear you out. Sin will wear you out and it will waste your life away. A life that could potentially be productive for the Lord, a life that could be useful for the Lord, will become a, a proverb, really, of the dangers of sin. So he lost physically, but he also lost more spiritually. He lost more spiritually. I think this was, <laughs> I like what one commentator said, this had to be one of the most expensive haircuts in history. The most expensive haircuts in all of history. Because he paid dearly. Um, I was reading some statistics on women and their allurement to taking care of themselves and their hairs and all this stuff, their hair. One study says the average woman spends over $50,000 on her hair in her lifetime. The average woman spends two years of her life washing, styling, and setting her hair. The average woman spends 41 minutes per day working on her hair. That's the average woman. A recent survey found that during... The last month, 54% of women surveyed got madder at their hair than they did at their own husbands. <laughs> I don't know who does these surveys, but I thought they were funny to share. And America spend, Americans spend over $7 billion, $7 billion per year on hair products. And that figure, by the way, does not include the billions spent on Americans every year by having their hair cut, colored, permed, set, and styled. That's just the products. Some of us don't have that problem, so that's, a, that's the one thing I like. When I started shaving my head, I thought, you know, I, I love it. The idea, I don't have to go to the barber anymore. I have to pay 15, 20 bucks to get my hair cut. Ridiculous. Yeah, now it's probably 40. I don't know. That was a long time ago. Yeah, you're right. But it seems to me that our hair is important to us. If our hair is that important to us, think about how important it should have been to Samson. 
His hair had never been cut. He was a Nazarite. He was part of a vow he was required to take that stipulated that Samson could not cut his hair. We saw that in Numbers 6-5. And, and, and it was an external symbol of his commitment to the Lord, to God. It identified him as a man who was set apart for God's use and for God's glory. That's what you would, in that culture, you would look at Samson and go, wow, there's a, there's a Nazarite. He's committed to the Lord. And as long as Samson left his hair to grow, it set him apart as a man of God. And when his hair was cut, he lost God's power in his life. As long as Samson allowed the Lord to control his hair, he was fine. But when he allowed Delilah to take control of his hair, he lost power with God. That's why it's the most expensive haircut in the history of the world. When Samson demoted God in his heart, he lost the only thing that set him apart. He lost the power of God. That's what made Samson who he was. Notice what his haircut, his haircut cost Samson. He lost his fellowship with God. It says the Lord was departed from him. It says that in the text. When Samson allowed his hair to be cut, he lost his strength. Now there was no more power in Samson's hair. There was no power there. His hair was a visible symbol, right, of his commitment to God. Samson was a Nazarite. And he was never to cut his hair all through his life. Samson had treated his vows as a Nazarite with disregard. He played fast and loose with this vow. All the way back in Judges 14, he touched a dead body. That was forbidden. Judges 14.10, he attended wine feasts. That's forbidden. He's not supposed to be around anything to do with grapes or vineyards. Both of those put him in danger of breaking his vows to God. And when Samson allowed his hair to be cut, he crossed the kind of the final line, the red line in the sand with God. In that moment, Samson was declaring that he loved Delilah more than what? Than he loved God. That's what he was saying clearly. He was saying that he loved his life of sin more than he loved his life as a servant of God. Samson's power did not come from his hair, by the way. It came from his relationship with the Lord. It came from his relationship with God. It was a a symbol of that relationship. And when his hair was cut, his fellowship with God was broken, and he paid a terrible price. God's power left him. And you know what? We'll pay the same price. If we want power with God in prayer and power in our daily lives, what what do we have to do? God tells us we, we have to live clean and close to the Lord. We have to address our sins and put God first in our lives, not last. There can be no room for sin in the lives of those who want power in their life with God. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. See, 
in, in Jesus Christ, our relationship is secure, but the fellowship that we share is fragile. You're not going to lose your eternal life because you sin. But when we want our sins more than we want him, more than we want a relationship with God, it will cause him to withdraw his power from our lives. And as a result, our prayer lives will be hindered, our worship will be hindered, our walk with God will be hindered, and draw, sin has a tendency to drive a, um, a wedge between the saint of God and his God. You can't have both. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt with deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created <coughs> after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the, th the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and all wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. That's what we're called to do. He lost his spiritual discernment. Not only his fellowship with God, he lost his spiritual discernment. These are the saddest words of this text. In verse 20, when it says very clearly, And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at other times and shake myself free. Look at what it says. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. <laughs> he didn't know it. He thought everything was hokey-dokey. No problem. When Samson awoke from his sleep, he did not even know that God had left him. This tells us how devastating sin's grip on his life, how great it was. He didn't even know the power of God was removed from his life. He assumed that, you know what, just like at other times, God would be on him just like he had always been. But this time he was wrong because sin had robbed Samson of all spiritual discernment. Samson had gotten so used to living life under his own strength that he did not realize that God had removed him that God had removed his strength from him. He had taken it for granted for so many years. He wasn't even aware of it. I mean, you know, we say all the time, well, we're dependent on God, we're dependent on God. And I, and I wonder, are we? If God 
just one day stop working in our lives, would we even notice? There's nothing sadder than someone who claims to know the Lord thinking they are living in the will of God when God is nowhere around them. We see it all the time. It's a tragedy. But that's the result of sin. Someone said there's nothing sadder than the husk of a Christian. Nothing on the inside. How tragic it is when people allow sin to strip them of all the things that matter. When they do, they're merely going through the the motions of being a Christian. There's nothing there. There's no life there. There's no transforming power there. Because without his presence and without his power, everything we do is what? It's in vain. I mean, my, my first thought was, how could Samson not know? How could he not know this? Because sin had a way of blinding him, and it blinds us to the truth of our condition. Sin will make you think you are right, and that, that everyone else, including God, is wrong. Sin will cause you to believe that you are always right, regardless of what you do or whom you may hurt. Because sin is a deceiver. At nat- its very nature is the one of deception. And, and it will rob you, rob us, of our spiritual discernment. And because of sin, most church members have little or no discernment. Sometimes I'm appalled at, at some of the, the things, even in a conservative church, some people, you know, they're, oh, I'm reading this book, and they show me the book, and it's like, are you serious? Do you know what this person stands for? Do you know what this person believes? They're a heretic. Why are you reading something like that? There's no discernment there. I've heard Christians tell me, well, I like to listen to Joel Olstein because I, I think he's, a, you know, he's just a, a nice young man. and <laughs> He's a heretic. He denies Christ. No discernment. They can't recognize the presence of the Holy Spirit in a service. They don't know how to respond appropriately when the Holy Spirit shows up. Because of sin, most people don't even know whether a sermon is good or bad. Sometimes it's just, it's very uh, discouraging when people come up and they're trying to be encouraging to me as a pastor. And they'll say something like, hey, pastor, I really enjoyed this sermon today. It's like, Wow, great. Praise the Lord. Yeah, that story you told about, that's it? That's all you got? Out of the whole sermon, you got a story when I was a little kid? and Really? It's just kind of disheartening. A lot of people in churches don't understand whether a sermon's good or bad, sound or unsound, true or false, filled with biblical truth or just a bunch of hot air. They don't, they don't have any discernment. Because sin is killing us in these days because it's destroying our ability to recognize the truth of God, to recognize the presence of God, to recognize the power of God. I mean, even Isaac, as he traveled with his father up to to Mount Moriah, had enough wisdom and discernment to know that something was wrong. (laughs) Something's wrong here. Let's see, we got everything. Genesis 22, 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, remember, he's going up to sacrifice him, my father. 
And Abraham said, here I am, my son. Behold, we have the fire. We have the wood. Uh, where's the lamb? <laughs> he, had, he had spiritual discernment to understand, wait, something's missing here. See, we need to repent of our sins. We need to ask God to forgive us and cleanse us so that we might have his power and that we might be wise enough to know when he's honest and when he's not. When he's leading us and when he's not. Thirdly, here he lost his ministry. Because of sin, the Lord put Samson literally on the shelf. He put him on the shelf. He removed him as judge over Israel. He was no longer a vessel fit for God's use. His ministry was over. And that can happen to us. Any one of us. That was Paul's fear. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I discipline my body, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That word disqualified refers basically unfit, a reprobate, not standing the test. It was used of, of coins back in the day when they were tested and not found to be struck from real gold. In other words, they were useless. They were fake. And Paul's fear was that he would become wor worthless to the Lord. And so what does he do? He took the necessary steps to overcome his flesh. He says he, he keeps under control. It means to, to beat black and blue his own body. That's what that word means. It means to enslave. Paul took the initiative. He mastered his flesh instead of allowing the flesh to master him. And Paul's fear should be our fear as well. I, I heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard this about John MacArthur. They, they said, well, you know, um, what's your favorite dessert? And he says, I don't usually eat dessert. And they said, you don't eat dessert? Like, you know, usually I won't, I'll pass on dessert. And he said, they asked him why. And he said, I just want to make sure I'm still in control of my body. So I just deny myself that. Good test. I don't want to lose my usefulness for the Lord. I pray that you don't want to use your usefulness for the Lord. But you know what? It could happen to any one of us if we don't take the necessary steps to defeat our sin and control our passions. Samson lost his ministry, and we could lose ours if we're not careful. Last thing here. He lost his testimony. He lost his testimony. Samson, the strong man, the mighty judge, where, where was he taken? He was taken to a Philistine prison. He was made, listen to this, to do the work of, of a woman. That's how humiliating his position was. He was made to do the work of the lowest kind of slave. In other words, he had humiliated. He was humiliated in the eyes of the enemy. I mean, we understand what that's like. All you have to do is watch the newsreels of the Taliban using our tanks and our aircraft and everything else over in Afghanistan. I mean, that's very humiliating. Very humiliating. Did you ever stop to consider that God was humiliated right along with Samson? When they laughed at Samson, they were mocking God as well. So a victory over Samson was considered to be a victory over his God in their mind. And when we fail in the flesh, when the traps of the enemy ensnare us, when we fall into sin, 
what does the Bible say? It says we bring reproach on the name of our Lord. And when a child of God sins, it always harms the cause of Christ. Always. That's why it's so disheartening when you see someone in ministry fail morally. God is so closely identified with his people that shame in the eyes of the world and the devil translate into his shame as well. 2 Samuel 12, 14, Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. 1 Peter 4, 15, 4, 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of, the, of glory in God rests upon you. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or as an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, if you're going to suffer, suffer for Christ. Titus 2, 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. He's talking about women there. 1 Timothy 6.1, Let all who are under a yoke as bond slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Or 1 Timothy 5.14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. I mean, this lesson ought to be crystal clear to us. What we do matters in our lives. What we do reflects back on God, on our Savior. So let us resolve here tonight that we'll do nothing that will be an evil reflection against the glory of God. Why? Because he deserves our best. So let's give it to him. There's nothing more shameful and more harmful to the cause of Christ than a damaged testimony for Christ. And when we allow sin to rule in our bodies, we will always tarnish our testimonies and bring dishonor to the name of our God. May that never be. Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we would take this to heart, that we have to come before you and deal with our sins and our temptations. We have to be honest about our weaknesses and be honest about the attractiveness of sin and realize that God alone is our strength. And if we're able to stand against sin in this world, it's only by your grace and your help. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, what? You can do nothing. First John 1 John 1.9, if we've already committed sin, if it's present in our life, we need to go to the Lord. He will forgive us. He will restore us. If we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can have victory because the Bible clearly says that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but he will allow a way of escape. How will your story end? How will it be written? The time to change the ending is now. <laughs> Don't wait till the end. It's going to be too late. The time to deal with sin is now. The time to come to Christ is now. The time to break, to make a break with your sin is now. I pray that we would do that willingly.
and trust you for the outcome. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.